Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 3, 2 Samuel chapter 3. If you uh, don't have a Bible handy or in your uh, digital device, there's some on the end of the pews that you can uh, grab and pass along if you if you need one. Second uh, Samuel is right after First Samuel, and it is uh, after the first five books of the Bible, after Judges and so forth. You'll find it in there before you get to First and Second Kings. And we are continuing today a series that we cranked up just a couple of weeks ago through this particular book of, of the Bible. Uh, I'll mention again, as I did last week, that if you would like to understand a bit of the sort of method to our madness of trying to work through uh, each uh, section of Scripture and walk through a book of the Bible, uh, I would greatly encourage you to look at or listen to my message from, I guess, two weeks ago, the very first one in our series. And you can find it online. You can, of course, set up the messages to be downloaded into your, your device as well on a regular basis through podcast. But it takes some time if you miss that particular week to listen to that, just maybe the first 12 minutes or so of that message, because it'll get get you up to speed on what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we hope it'll be beneficial and a blessing to us. And then it'll also get you up to speed on what a lot of what happened in First Samuel that we looked at last year that's certainly helpful to understand as we come in to Second Samuel. But I'll give you a little bit of the context. We know in, in the first chapter of Second Samuel, King Saul has died. He was the main king uh, leading throughout First uh, Samuel. And uh, he was, of course, in conflict, if you recall, with David. David was on the run for much of that second part of First Samuel. David had just 600 followers or so and their families that were with him, warriors that were fighting with him and the rest of the population was with uh, with Saul. And Saul was, in fact, the designated uh, king. But we know that God was planning for David to be raised up. Saul dies in the first chapter of of Second uh, Samuel. And, and then a sort of civil war ensues. So even after that, still, the, the masses have, have not yet come over. They've not shifted their allegiance over to David. There's a sort of civil war ensues. And today what we're going to do is we look at Second Samuel because it's Palm Sunday and we want to kind of look at some of these broader themes. We're going to read just a, a one verse at the beginning of chapter three and one verse uh, towards the end of chapter three. And then we're going to jump over into uh, the uh, the New Testament in Matthew chapter 21. There's a sermon note section in the back of your worship guide. As many of you know, our uh, ministry assistant, bookkeeper, so forth, Christine was out with knee surgery. So there's not a lot of details in the sermon note section, but there's some pages you can write on if you would like to, to make some notes. We'll get back to having an outline in there uh, next week, hopefully. But as I, as I read these verses... I want you to see this main theme today, and I think it's an important one for us. And that is how, in David's case, the masses who, the, the public, if you will, the populace who were not with him, and even after Saul was killed, are still divided between sort of north and south in the civil war for a couple of chapters, that they are now beginning to align with him. He's growing uh, stronger. He's improving And so folks are getting on board. The Fairweather fans have showed up and are excited about King David. And in particular, I'll just summarize why they're praising him. He's able to be magnanimous once again with an incident that happens between one of the leaders of the opposing forces, the forces of the north in this case of Israel. And that leader is killed in a murderous way. 
And yet David, once again, is able to show, as he did with the death of Saul, give honor, give praise, give recognition, even to one who was his enemy. And these things, I think you'll see, are a picture for us, are a foreshadowing of things that come to fruition when the son of David, the Lord Jesus, comes in triumphantly and does all that he does for us during Holy Week. So read along with me uh, just a couple of verses from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 3 with that context in mind. And then a few verses from Matthew 21. It says in 2 Samuel 3 verse 1, it says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And then jump down to verse 36. It says, and all the people took notice of it. That's how David, you know, handled this situation magnanimously. And it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all of the people. Then turn with me to Matthew. That's the first book in the New Testament, chapter 21, verses we've kind of already referenced a couple times in our worship service today. Starting in uh, verse one of chapter 21, it says this. Now, when they drew near, this was Jesus and his disciples, to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied, the colt, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them away at once. He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, a foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them. And he sat on them, that is Jesus. Most of the crowd spread spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, And that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray again. Oh, heavenly father, we I ask that you would open our eyes to see good things from your word, open our ears to hear necessary things from it for our good and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we could probably look to and think of uh, hundreds of examples just in our own lifetime and experience And certainly from the context of a larger historical perspective of how fickle the masses can be. How easily public opinion shifts and wavers. How quickly we find ourselves, if we confess, I know we probably would like to say we all rise above that, but if we confess that we are prone to this as well, how quickly we're manipulated by the particular information That we happen to receive. How much we're directed by our predisposition when we encounter a particular situation. And by our hesitancy frequently to take the time to actually investigate what is true. 
Just look at how quickly we, in popular opinion, toss aside our star athletes, lay aside our popular politicians and our famous movie and film stars as well when they don't do what we want them to do or in the way we want them to do it. I recently watched the ESPN film presentation about the 2006 Duke lacrosse team. It's uh, not one for the whole family to watch, that's for sure, uh, with the particular themes there. But it reminded me of this issue as I watched uh, about that lacrosse team as they, in 2005, had risen to the, the heights of glory and popularity as much as can be possible for a lacrosse team as they came in just second in the national championship competition by one point and were greatly anticipated to win successfully the championship in 2006. Next to the Duke basketball team, of course, uh, they were the, the crown jewel of the Duke athletic program. They received praise and accolades from everyone on the campus. As you recall, unfortunately, the teammates on that particular team were admittedly not the most upstanding of citizens holding uh, regular parties with all the uh, sinful activities that you might associate with collegiate athletic life. On one particular occasion, including some really inappropriate entertainment. Uh, Though shameful, though, this wasn't criminal. It wasn't illegal. When one of the ladies who had been at the party charged the team with the most heinous of acts... The masses, you remember it, don't you, rushed to judgment. The media fed on all the dynamics, class, race, gender, the elite education versus the town's people there in Durham. I remember it. I don't remember if you recall, but I remember thinking where there's that much smoke, there's got to be fire. These guys are guilty in my mind. Not only did their teammates or their classmates, I should say, and the campus turn on them, but the whole country descended upon that little North Carolina town, a feeding frenzy of media attention to this, a delight to see this particular team brought down in this particular way. Most of us didn't even care to determine whether They were guilty and had already made them innocent in our own minds. Their faithful team coach who had really invested in them was forced to resign. Their whole season, 2006, was canceled. Uh, All 41 players, I believe, engaged attorneys. And some of the players eventually observed that had they not been from the particular class and group that many of them were from and been able to afford the kind of legal help that they were able to, that they would have certainly been found guilty in court as well as in public opinion. As you know, they were all ultimately exonerated, and it turned out to be essentially a political maneuver by the DA in that particular town who manufactured and manipulated evidence to get a whole lot of attention, to get reelected to office. It's incredible 
to look back on that and think of how fickle we can all be. How easily we blow with the winds of popular opinion. And it especially makes me think about what happens in the scriptures with King David in his situation where he's going now from being relatively unpopular on the run with King Saul controlling things. And and now he's rising to popularity. But why? Why are people excited about him? Because he's doing what they want him to do because he's fulfilling the role they want him to fulfill. And in contrast, of course, we see and we know that King Jesus, that what Palm Sunday is ultimately about is the uh, beauty of being able to praise and exalt Jesus and him coming in to do what he intends to do. And the contrast between that and how fickle we are, how quickly we turn away from him, that Jesus, King Jesus, where he is steadfast We are wavering where he's the faithful king. We are so unfaithful as followers where he fights for his people. We so quickly would abandon him. We see it later on, of course, with Peter highlighted on an individual basis where Peter is asked where his allegiances lie. Are you one of the followers of this one Jesus? Peter's been with him. Jesus has poured into his life. He's experienced his love. And yet, even with just that small gathering around that fire, as Peter sees and recognizes the type of things that Jesus is enduring already and going to endure, he denies Christ. He denies him. It's a sobering picture for us today. As we think about our own hearts and lives and how fickle we can be. Let's talk about it this way in a couple of application points. You know, we we perhaps talk in the church sometimes about Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. It's a favorite passage of mine. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. Trusting, leaning on him, and he will direct your path. We think as well about James chapter 1, in that passage where it says, you know, if we lack wisdom, if we need help getting through life and understanding where to go, that we should ask the Lord, and he will give it, and we'll be steadfast, instead of like those that are tossed to and fro in the sea. And we compare that, don't we, with where you and I are so often. Where instead of really taking the wisdom that Jesus has for us, we're not steadfast and floating through the ocean flawlessly. We're like a little tiny bobber. I know I feel that way so often. A little fishing bobber in the middle of a tsunami. Just being thrown all around. Thrown all around because we're so prone to let go of Jesus instead of hold on to him and appreciate his kingship. We're like that with leaning into him. We have the opportunity to lean on him and have him direct our paths. But we lean on so many other things that we use for support. We abandon Jesus. We turn away from him. It reminds me, too, as well, of of just what's happening in our culture and how we get drawn into that. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, a sort of Christian philosopher and apologist and preacher, said years ago, he said, watch what a generation is doing with their words. 
and you'll see what they're doing with reality. Watch what a generation is doing with their words, and you'll see what a generation is doing with reality. Uh, This not only shapes the idea of what we call a, a Christian worldview, what does it mean to have a Christian perspective? Uh, as the culture would throw us this way and that way and say, no, you know, th- this is the way to go. And, and this is the way to go. As believers, we say, I'm following Jesus. I'm following Jesus regardless of what the, the culture shifting winds would tell me. And filling in that Christian worldview is things like the nature of marriage, like what racial justice looks like. Like how our economic system should should be. It's all things that are up in front of us right now in the the political scene that we're in. The arts, career, sanctity of life. All of those things are areas where it's so easy for us as the masses to just go along to get along. Instead of listening to what Jesus says, to wisdom from him. Instead of leaning on him for our understanding. But here's where it comes most focused and most essential. The issue that the masses dealt with in Jesus's time, the issues that the masses were facing in David's time as they considered who he was as king. Who is King Jesus? What did he do for us? And there's multiple versions of who Jesus is and what he is. It's not it's not really enough for us to say we believe in Jesus. We have to answer the question, who is that Jesus? I sat uh, recently with a, uh, a gentleman in the latter part of his life who had served. I was just meeting him for the first time, and he had served as a leader in his particular church circles. And we began to, to talk about different things in life, and he expressed some, some viewpoints on particular outworkings of the, the Christian faith as he saw it in particular social and moral matters in our culture that's facing. And, and I graciously sort of pushed back because we weren't seeing eye to eye on it. And it was interesting as the conversation progressed from those matters, then he came to the point of where he shared with me his view about Christ and who Christ was. And essentially, in, in his perspective, Jesus was somebody with good thoughts for, for decent living. He was good thoughts for decent living. That there really wasn't any need for us to uh, come to him in faith and repentance. That all sort of roads were going to lead to heaven eventually. All of these things that really go directly against what the Bible teaches. Some tough things that the Bible teaches. And it was interesting to see how all of those other viewpoints that he had were ultimately downstream from the fact that he had abandoned the idea of Jesus being essential to his salvation and to the world's salvation. And it was interesting to talk with him and think about how the prosperity gospel message in our culture says that our Christianity ought to be about the fact that we're going to have this perfect life, that we're going to be perfectly healthy, and that that's what the gospel is. That's what Jesus came to do. And the scriptures couldn't say anything further from the truth. Jesus went to a cross. The apostle Paul suffered and couldn't even get rid of his own ailments. The message that's out there that Jesus is just here to give good thoughts for decent living, to kind of be an example of how we ought to try to live. This idea that that is so difficult to ignore during Easter week in particular of atonement, that he came to pay the price pound and pound, pound for pound for people like you and me that need a redeemer. Or maybe a message that's out there about Jesus that says he's only here to condemn. 
That's all that Jesus is about. He's telling us how bad we are, how horrible we are, and not giving us any hope, really, to get out of it. Or giving us a set of rules and regulations we've got to obey. And that, that's, that's really what Jesus is about. It's so essential for us to make sure that what we are pursuing is Christianity, not me-anity. I know in my heart of hearts, my propensity is to make Jesus into who I want him to be. And that's why it's just vital for us to keep coming back to, to this book, to the scriptures, and having our view of Christ informed and shaped by that. The masses are not just a group of people out there. They're us. We are people who get radically disappointed in who Jesus is when he doesn't measure up to who we want him to be and are so prone to turn away from him when really the only hope is turning to him. So that's one thing I wanted us to see today. Another thing I'd love for us to see, and it's really highlighted more back in the passage in 2 Samuel, is the fact that Jesus is this uh, magnanimous king. He's the fulfillment of David. So when David is able to kind of rise above the bitterness and the divisiveness even of civil war and give honor to this guy, Abner, we didn't read all of it, but it's in chapter 3 there, and the people respond. They are excited about who he is because they realize that there's something special about that. And isn't it wonderful for us to realize today that once we absorb and agree with the fact that we're fickle in, in our approach to Jesus, that's our propensity, that he still loves us, that he still shows his grace and mercy to us who don't deserve it. It's incredible. He, he's able to rise above that, and even as those people are praising, to, praising him as he walks into Jerusalem, rides into Jerusalem, he knows that those masses are going to abandon him. Think about the, the uh, garden where he's asking his disciples simply just to pray with him. You know, you don't have to go out there and uh, be a martyr and actually die for him. I'm not asking you to do that right now. Later on, many of them are going to be. He just says, just, just pray with me for a minute. And you remember what happened. They all fall asleep. Can't even stay awake to pray with him. Folks, it's not just a story. It's meant to remind us and highlight the need that we have for one who stays awake. Who doesn't just stay awake, but endures that suffering. All that would be involved in the cross and triumphs through it victoriously. Jesus is that fulfillment of what David is in Second Samuel 3, that magnanimous king. That shows you and I who don't deserve his love. Incredible and self-sacrificing love. What a picture. The last thing we see is that uh, even though those masses are fickle, Jesus still enters triumphantly. Right? You could ask the question, why does he even go through it? Because... They're not going to be there when it's time for him to go to the cross. Why even do this, uh, this whole presentation of coming in and, and boldly entering that way? Well, I think because there are these different facets to who Jesus is for us. He's the sacrificial suffering one, but he's also the kingly ruling exalted one that we take joy and delight in. The triumphal entry is beautiful that way. I had the... Uh, opportunity yesterday rather unexpectedly to make a triumphal entry 
I don't know if uh, word has spread too much, but uh, on the way up to this wedding that was in Huntsville yesterday for uh, Joe and Sarah Ann, uh, who I had the chance to get to know a bit better in the last couple of weeks and some premarital counseling and so forth, their, their wedding was up in Huntsville. And yesterday I was doing what um, what probably a lot of you all here are doing, especially if you've got little ones. I, I had to leave. I knew I was going to have to leave mid-afternoon to get there by 5 o'clock. So I was there plenty of time before the 6 o'clock wedding. And I was, you know, part of officiating it and doing the vows and all those kind of the nuts and bolts part of it. And so, you know, left early in the morning, had my suit in the in the car. We took two cars because we had kids sporting events. We had to get to a, a baseball game and then a lacrosse game. And I kind of wanted to stay as long as I could before I had to, to leave and get on the road. So three o'clock, I get on the road, plenty of time to get there. Heading up, you know, vehicles usually in good shape, no problem. Had been back up there and back on Friday night for the rehearsal, driving along, and I just I started to notice that that little oil gauge one was kind of going down a little further than it usually was, and I just kind of dismissed it and kept cruising along, you know, got to got to get up there to it, and all of a sudden I look up and the the oil pressure gauge is like all the way down by the bottom line, and I'm thinking that's probably not a good thing. Probably not, not, not a positive deal. Then the little uh, signals start coming on, and the beeping thing, too, and the beeping won't stop. And the little message, you know, the little message that says, you know, turn engine off. That was what it said, turn engine off. Well, you know, when you're trying to get to a wedding in Huntsville by 5 o'clock, it's hard to turn the engine off, right? So I keep going. I'm trying to get there. I make it to uh, Dodge City. 299 was that exit. I learned a lot of the exits along the way yesterday. And, and, and I, had, I had some buffer time, right? I mentioned the buffer. Well, I pull in. I thought maybe just a little low on oil. Check the, you know, let it sit for a minute. Check the oil. I'm getting a, a little bit stressed, but not a lot stressed. And I get they didn't have quite the right kind of oil. I had to go and put the extra quart of oil in and so forth. Get back on the road thinking, okay, we're good. And the pressure kind of went back up. And then about seven, eight miles down the road, it started heading back down again. And the buzzers and signals and all the lights were going off again and, and made it just to about uh, exit 322. There's a Love's there with a McDonald's attached to it if you ever need a place to, to stop. So the Love's little Love's truck stopped. Not to be confused with another Love's institution. But anyway, the Love's truck stopped, pulled in there. And I said, you know, is there a mechanic nearby Saturday afternoon? Not a whole lot of likelihood of finding a mechanic open, but I tried to call and so forth. Eventually, I started making the calls. Now, I did not call Lynn Lanier. I did not call her to give her the news. I called David because I figured he could work that however he wanted to work that, that, hey, look, I'm going to be really late or maybe not make it to the wedding. And and I let, you know, let them know, let the other preacher preacher know. Uh, that, that, you know, he was involved with the service that, that I would be running a little behind. And I call, I started calling backup. So I knew that some folks would be coming up. Uh, you know, it's not a good thing when the preacher for the service is actually running behind the guests that are coming to the service. So they had actually passed me the Hargroves. I got a hold of them. They pulled in. They had their Camry. Camry with the Lewis, the Sipes, Lewis and Donna and Jackie and Denson all loaded in plus me. It was, we were packed, but we got the rest of the way on to, to our, our thing. Um, driving on up, so that was 5.15. We had about 35 minutes if we were going to get there on time. And I felt like if we got pulled over, we had a good excuse. I really felt like we did. 
so we, we get on up there, and I come in. It was fun. They dropped me, they dropped me off in the front of the church. I felt like an important person because they were pulling me right in, hopping out. Denson gets out, helps me get my stuff together. I walk in. They had robes for this service. I had never worn a robe for a wedding. They were ready with the robe, like, put your arms in it. We've got it all ready for you, these robes, these cloaks to put on me. And, and they were waiting right there by the back door, and it, it, was, it was kind of exciting to be able to make this triumphal entry, to get there right on time, because what? They're not going to be able to get married if the preacher doesn't show up. And it made me uh, think about the whole thing with Jesus. Okay? I didn't, you know, the wedding is not about me. It's about Joe and Sarah Ann. Usually kind of behind the scenes as the preacher, you're up there talking, but it's the, the focus is on them. But it was kind of exciting, right, to be able to be people waiting on you, ready for you to come. Jesus, he deserves all that attention. He deserves all that excitement. And so people being elated for him to come into Jerusalem was right and fitting and good, just like we sing praises on Sunday mornings. Uh, the service can't go forward without the preacher. Jesus, we can't be united in relationship with, uh, with God in a saving way as us, the, the bride, and Jesus, the groom, without Jesus coming in and doing what only he could do. Uh, maybe another time I'll finish the story and tell you about my ride home with Bill Shine and how he made several wrong turns, and then we got pulled over by the police at 11 o'clock, and... They were concerned that he was drinking, and I was wondering, I was wondering myself, maybe, at that point. But that, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother sermon. That's a whole nother sermon message. Uh, we, we talked our way out of that one. But, but here's the thing. Uh, Jesus, Jesus, he does all things well, right? He, he's, he's not late. For the things that he needs to do. We don't have to worry about him coming through and fulfilling what he needs to do either. He's there at just the right time in history. In God's redeeming work to do his work for us. And he's there in our lives today. And as we recognize and think about this Palm Sunday again. And recognize our fickle hearts. What a privilege it is. What a privilege it is to have this one Jesus who's faithful, who's magnanimous, who rises above our fickleness and does for us what we need done, even though we're not who we need to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this one Jesus, and we thank you for his steadfastness, his faithfulness, his reliability, even where we recognize in ourselves a tremendous unreliability. And so we uh, praise you for that. We ask that our hearts and lives, minds, spirits would overflow with uh, worship to you, especially this week, as we give particular attention all that Jesus did for us on the cross and his resurrected life for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.